0: What's stopping you You, you. from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You, you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Hey, is that you? Are you a non-Catholic? Maybe you are a Methodist or a Baptist, Episcopalian, whatever, and you've got a question about the Catholic faith, and you'd love to get an actual authentic answer. We can provide that. Here is our phone number, 833 288 ewtn That's eight three three. If you're listening to us in Oman, then you want to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that's ctc at ewtn.com. Great way to contact the show if you're watching us on TV today. And that, again, is ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener our uh, social media efforts handled by uh, Rich Jesse. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now on both platforms. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Love to get that question of yours answered on today's program. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anton. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Katie, and I think this is is just a a simple misunderstanding from Katie. She says, I don't see how praying the rosary isn't disobeying Jesus' teaching to not, quote, babble like the pagans. Um, Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So Jesus
1: makes it very clear that what he is condemning is those who believe that they will be heard because of their many words. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's very specific about that. And you know the the uh, we find repetition in prayer, in sacred scripture, in the inspired text. Um, what is it? Is it um, uh, Psalm one hundred and thirty-six, for example, with the uh, the couplet "His love endures forever." Yes. that repeats. A bazillion times throughout the psalm, you know, and, <laughs> you know that one that's like may all mountains and streams and water creatures and dolphins and D D characters and superheroes praise the Lord. I mean, it's <laughs> this, this enumeration of everything you can possibly imagine, invoke to to give praise to God. I mean, there's that sort of thing in Scripture all the time. And when Christ himself gave instructions on how to pray, he offered us a repetitive formula. He said, "Pray like this," the Lord's Prayer, and. I mean, if you pray the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis, which the text itself seems to anticipate Christians mm-hmm. will do, mm-hmm. it's not, not Lord, give me my weekly bread, Lord, give me my monthly bread, my, my, my quarterly bread, my <laughs> semi-annual bread, you know, following the fiscal year. No, it's my daily bread. Yes. Right? then repetition is, uh, is, uh, is expected as part of the Christian life. So it's, uh, it's the superstitious belief that I will be heard because of my many words. And that is something the Catholic Church continues to affirm. If someone were to take up the rosary or the psalms or any other prayer of the Church and believe that, that I can compel God to do my will— Merely by pronouncing the formula over and over and over again, then that would be a species of magic or superstition, rather than real biblical prayer. Mm-hmm. Purpose of prayer is to conform my will to God's, not to bend God's will to
0: mine. Right, and um, there you go, uh, Katie. Thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Al, who says, "I understand that Catholics have to go to confession only when in the state of mortal sin. Is this correct?" Yeah. That is correct.
1: The Code of Canon Law says that a Catholic is obligated to confess his known mortal sins at least once a year in kind and number. There's nothing in the Code of Canon Law about confessing venial sins at any interval of frequency. Uh, Now, as a matter of spiritual practice, it's recommended that a person go more frequently than once a year. And in fact, you can go to confession even if you're not conscious of grave sin. Pope John Paul II, who was a saint— uh, went to confession daily. He had a lot on his mind, being being the vicar of Christ. Right? Sure. Um, for most people, that would not be advisable, but weekly confession is is not at all inappropriate, and, you know, I think monthly confession, a very good idea. But you're correct in terms of the law. You're required to confess your known
0: mortal sins in kind and number one, at least once a year. Al, thanks for your email as well. Here's one now from Andrea. I've heard that the physical body of Jesus came from Mary. Is this true? And if so, how do we know this is true? I guess I always thought the Holy Spirit somehow formed the body of Jesus, but Mary was just the carrier of that body.
1: Um, yeah, well, if that were the case, then he wouldn't be a human being, right? He, he, he had to derive his genetic material from a human parent. Now, the miraculous thing is he got all of it from one human parent. Yeah. He didn't have two human parents. Um, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely, he was, he was genuinely conceived of the Blessed
0: Virgin Mary, And that means he would have partaken of her genetic material. Okay. And we have this anonymous question now. Uh, How do we know that baptism is the means of grace by which we are cleansed of original sin? Could it not be the case that Christ's death vicariously remitted the human race of all original sin without the need for that grace to be actualized via a sacrament? And if so... Infant baptism would become unnecessary because baptism would only cleanse us of actual sin. Thanks, Anonymous.
1: Um, Yeah, thanks. So you're asking whether it's logically possible for God to remit the guilt of original sin immediately, you know, that is to say, without any kind of material medium, Mm -hmm. um, either through the death of Christ or from some other causality. And, of course, the answer to that question is yes. Of course God could do that. He didn't. He didn't. Right, just the fact that God could do something, I mean, you know, God could, uh, God could, uh, you know, he could, he could, you know, cause it that, make it the case that I like watered down beer from Milwaukee, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: wow. that's not the universe that he made it. You know, I mean, he, I, I, he made the universe such that I like, you know, dark beer from Ireland, not okay. watered down beer from Milwaukee. Um, and in the same way, he created a, a, a scheme of redemption in which the death of christ is applied to us the grace uh-huh. of christ's death is applied to us through the medium of the sacraments
0: all right and uh, thanks so much for your anonymous email if you would like to send us an email for a future show especially those of you watching on tv today here's the address ctc at ewtn.com ctc at ewtn.com in a moment we're going to be talking with Les in cincinnati also joe in kansas Terry in California. Looks like two lines open right now. 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. It's called communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us. call to communion here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Les in Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio, AM 740. Hey there, Les, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hi, thank you for taking my
0: call. Um, I'm asking, I've got some friends who are really put off by the seeming vindictive, murderous God
1: of the Old Testament, And they can't seem to get over that, and so how can I justify, explain, or whatever to them? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, in point of fact, Jesus Christ took a very relativistic attitude towards uh, the Old Testament, and I'll demonstrate what I mean. So a passage in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees whether a man can lawfully divorce his wife. And, of course, the law of Moses answered that in the affirmative, that he could. He just writes her a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, no, he can't. And the Pharisees, a bit perplexed, say, well, then why did Moses say otherwise? And Christ's response was, well, Moses wrote this because of your hardness of heart, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. What God made, you know, judge one together, man can't separate. Mm -hmm. Now, interesting thing about that passage, two interesting things. One is that the text itself says nothing about Moses' condescension to human weakness. It's a very, thus saith the Lord, kind of passage. Mm-hmm. Jesus, however, interprets that and says, well, this isn't, as it were, directly from God. This is a kind of prudent decision that Moses made, a kind of concession to the cultural mores of the day, but it's not morally ideal. So he, he, he introduces kind of a, a kind of note of separation between the, the, the literal text of the law and the will of God. And one that actually puts the text somewhat at odds with the will of God, which is a very strange thing to to say. Saint Paul in the Book of Galatians uh, seems to have a similar idea when he talks about the law having been mediated by angels. And some commentators, there's nothing that says the law was mediated by angels in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Some commentators think again that was a, a way of kind of putting some uh, putting some daylight between the the mind of God, as it were in his essence and then what we actually find written on the page. A couple other instances in the New Testament worth worthy of note. One would be John chapter 8. The woman caught in adultery. Now the law clearly stated that people caught in adultery were to be put to death. It was a death penalty for that for that crime. Mm-hmm. And they approach Jesus and says, "Well, should we carry out the letter of the Mosaic law?" And again, you know the story, I'm sure, J- Jesus won't respond and and basically refuses to comply. He he demurs and does not insist on the literal application of the Mosaic Law. Well, if you take the text literally, then Jesus was wrong. But, of course, Jesus wasn't wrong. If you take the text literally, Jesus was advocating something contrary to the law in those passages, but understood in a deeper sense he was really seeking the meaning, the substance of the law, Mm -hmm. which can be summed up according to Paul in the twin commands of the love of God and the love of neighbor. And so, recognizing that there is this kind of... uh, Uh, paradox in Jesus' approach to the law, who says, after all, that not one jot or tittle will pass away till all these things are fulfilled. How can those both be true? How can it be true that the law is sort of rigorously applied, not a jot or tittle drops, and yet Jesus puts such significant daylight between the mind of God and the the text as written? Well, uh, St. Paul, when he deals with that question, says that there is a spiritual meaning to the Old Testament that is not apparent to the man on the street, as it were, but only comes into play when you have the mind of Christ. First Corinthians second, excuse me, First Corinthians two, he talks about that at some length. And uh, that was actually the most the, the most quoted passage of St. Paul in the first three centuries of the church, the fathers who commented on Paul's epistles, that was where they went most of all, was to this understanding of the spiritual meaning of the law. And so in Catholic teaching, this is now dogma. Mm-hmm. you have the literal text. Um, but but it conceals, as it were, a spiritual significance that's allegorical and anagogical and moral that we can only ascertain by having the mind of Christ, by taking Jesus' perspective on things. And, uh, and that means that, uh, that, that the man on the street, the way he takes the Old Testament, is the wrong way to take it. Uh, if you look at um, the, uh, the uh, apostolic exhortation from Pope Benedict, um, verbum domini on mm-hmm. the Word of God, he makes this point plainly. He says that the Old Testament requires a certain kind of sophistication in order to read it properly, that we don't read it as fundamentalists, as, that is to say, as the man on the street would understand it. Um, but we have to read it with the mind of the Church, with the mind of Christ, um, and, with, uh, and with some expertise and sophistication. So uh, in Catholic dogma, when we get to the question, who is God? What is God? What is God like? We have a pretty sublime doctrine of God that runs flat contrary to the narrative description of God in the Old Testament. What I mean by that is the Old Testament will say things like God changes his mind. But the dogma, the Catholic dogma on God is that God doesn't change. Right. Now, St. James says he doesn't change, the New Testament says he doesn't change. And so we we look at those passages, and like Christ did with the command on adultery, we say, well, that's a kind of condescension to human weakness. That's a kind of a a language that uses, uses the genre of narrative and the genre of myth to describe maybe something more existential about our relationship to God in the state of sin. So, you know, we talk about God's wrath, for example. Probably the best way to understand that is not to think about the deity being filled with rage, but rather the sense of alienation that I have from my true good when I give myself over to a life of dissipation. That feels could feel like wrath to me, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but when we predicate of God, when we say things about God, that, uh, that we have to purify those predications of anything creaturely or human. That's another dogma of the faith. How do we talk about God? And that it, the best we can do in speaking about God is to speak with analogies, And the Fourth Lateran Council said that whatever analogies we can find in human language to find the divine nature, that the disanalogy, the distance between God and our human speech, is infinitely greater than whatever similarities we can predicate. And so there's a whole tradition in Catholic spirituality called apophaticism, which is that the best way to approach God is by negation, what we can't say about him rather than what we can't. So all this is to say there's a very sophisticated Catholic approach to the Old Testament that has a lot of nuance um, and certainly does not take these representations literally and at face value the way your friends do. If you would like to read a just fantastic book on the topic that I highly recommend— uh, it's by Matthew Ramage, R-A-M-A-G-E, is a theology professor at Benedictine College. It's called um, The Dark Passages of the Old Testament, and it's an application of the Church's traditional hermeneutic um, as interpreted by Pope Benedict to the interpretation of these biblical passages. So again, Matthew Ramage, Dark Passages of the Old Testament is where I send you.
0: There you go, Les. Uh, thanks so much for your call today. I hope that's helpful for you and your friends. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833 833- 833 288-EWTN, if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Joe is listening in Kansas on the Ave Maria Radio online app. Uh, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I was wondering, where is it in the Bible that says that, all, really, all Christians, we go to Mass on Sunday? Yep. yep. I'm, sure, I'm sure this is biblical.
1: Okay. Yep, yep, I can I can do that for you. I have a couple things to say about that. First of all, all four gospels concur that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week, right? You we find that in all four gospels. Mm-hmm. And when we get into the epistles and into Acts, when when there are references to the time that Christians gathered for worship, there are two places in the scriptures to talk about that, Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 16, both of them reference the first day of the week, the Lord's day. When we look at early Christian writing outside the New Testament, writing from the 2nd and 3rd century, again, it's, it's, it's unambiguous that uh, the Church understands itself not to be Sabbatarian, that we do not keep the Jewish Sabbath, but in fact we keep the Lord's Day. So you'll find that phrase, the Lord's Day, uh-huh. in the Didache, the letter of Barnabas, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, all the uh, apostolic fathers that talk about this in the 2nd and 3rd century. So um, it's an ancient practice, goes back to the apostolic times, and again, the rationale for worshiping on Sunday is that it is is the Lord's Day. It's the day the Lord rose from the dead, so we commemorate that day with the Holy Eucharist. Now, I have to say something else about the question. When someone approaches me about a Catholic practice or doctrine and says, well, where is that in the Bible? I, I can usually answer the question, but I don't want to leave the premise of the question unchallenged. See, that what's implied by that is that, well, if you can't find scriptural warrant for this thing, then I don't have to do it or I don't have to believe it. And that principle itself, the idea that I should somehow limit my practice to only those things found in the Bible, is itself unbiblical. And so, you know, if someone proposes that as a doctrine of the faith, an article of faith, only believe those things you can find in the Bible, then I want to turn around and ask that same individual, okay, is that principle itself taught in the Bible? Does the Bible say only hold to things you can find in the Bible. And, of course, the Bible says no such thing. The Bible right. doesn't even identify itself as a coherent entity. There's no table of contents divinely inspired, you know, from a sacred author handed down that says, here are the books of the Bible you have to consult. The only reason we have a Bible, the the, the 73 books that we have in the Catholic canon of Scripture, is because the Church defined these particular books as canonical put them together into a collection and promulgated them as the Word of God. So, in other words, the reason we have the Bible that we have is through sacred tradition. So if you don't acknowledge tradition as an authority in Catholic life or Christian life, then you better throw out the Bible, because the Bible is a product of Catholic tradition. And in fact, when you look to what the Scripture says about how to determine the confines of Christian life, what the Scriptures tell us is not look to the Bible— but rather look to the teaching of the church. When Christ sent out the apostles, he said, Go on to all nations and teach everything I have commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And of course, what Christ commanded was all oral tradition and his own divine example, and he gives them the command to teach uh, and make converts, not to direct their, their converts to a
0: particular set of texts. Uh, Joe, is that helpful for you, sir? Yes, thank you. All right, thank you. It is a call to communion here on EWTN, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV, uh, please shoot us an, e- an email. The address for that ctc at EWTN.com. Here is Lisa now listening in Cleveland on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lisa, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi there, Dr. Anders. Hi, Tom. Hi. I went to daily Mass this morning, and in the Gospel, Jesus speaks pretty strongly against tradition, as far as you nullify the Word of God in favor of your tradition that you have handed on, and you do many such things, and I was wondering why we as Catholics place such a heavy emphasis on tradition, if Jesus himself seems to speak so heavily against it. Yeah, thanks. So, Jesus does not reject the principle of tradition. In fact, he he endorses the principle of tradition, and I just mentioned this in the last call, when Christ gave instruction for the disciples on how to proceed throughout the world, what he told them to do was to take the deposit of faith he had delivered to them orally— and to promulgate that, to teach that deposit of faith and to hand it on to subsequent generations. That's precisely what we mean by tradition. Tradition is that which is handed on. Mm-hmm. What the Church is to hand on is the deposit of faith given to us by Jesus. So St. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he, they didn't have a Bible in his day. I mean, 1 the, the Corinthians is one of the first books that would b- later become the, fir- the New Testament, so he can't refer to the New Testament in writing them. <laughs> he says, uh, the tradition I receive from the Lord I hand on to you. And in Thessalonians, he says, you know, hold fast to the traditions that you received, those both in writing and those that came to you orally. So tradition is the principle for the dissemination, for the propagation of the Christian faith through the centuries, by the Lord's decree. That's Jesus' intent. Mm-hmm. So what he critiques in these passages that you that you evoke is not tradition per se, but Pharisaical tradition. He He takes specific aim at the tradition of the Pharisees precisely because that tradition contravenes the Word of God. And in particular, as you know, having read the Gospels, what was of, of great issue to Jesus was the insistence on the, the outward ritual conformity to the law without attending to the interchange of heart. So he would say, for example, you know, you, you, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law like love and justice and mercy. Um, you know, you, you wash your hands before you, you eat food, uh, but you pay no attention to the impurity in your heart that sort of thing that was that those were the principles that Jesus was critiquing um not not th- that we should have something that we hand on to posterity right
0: um so there you have it all right and lisa thank you so much for your call today call to communion here on EWTN still time for your call at 833 288 EWTN matt watching us on youtube this afternoon matt says can baptized non catholics participate in the sacrifice of the Mass, and offer their bodies as living sacrifices, as St. Paul tells us to do?
1: No! Can bapti- wait. baptized non-Catholics participate in the sacrifice of the Mass? No, no, they can't, they can't. Can they offer their bodies as living sacrifices? Well, yeah. Okay. They can, they can. All right, uh, they can be saved but they can't participate in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, except in an extremely extended way. I mean, they could attend Mass. Mm-hmm. They could attend Mass. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they'd be included in the Church's intentions in a very broad sense, but uh, the Mass is properly the, the ritual offering of the Church. So if you're not part of the Church in a, in a formal way, in a visible way, yeah, yeah. then you can't fully participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. In particular, you can't receive Holy Communion. And while, while it's possible to to will the end of the Mass and to be savingly and edifyingly connected to the sacred action without mm-hmm. communion, communion is the kind of natural complement to the sacrifice of the altar and the sign of our belonging to the one body of Christ, uh, as well as the, the, the supernatural mode of receiving that very same body. Yeah. So, um, so uh, they can be saved. They have a kind of extended connection to the Catholic faithful. Uh, But in the proper sense of the word, the sacrifice of the Mass is the sacrifice of Mm -hmm. the members, the the, Mm -hmm. the
0: visible members of the Catholic Church. And as we have said on this program, uh, and certainly many, many times, if you believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches, hey! What's keeping you out? That's it, exactly! Appreciate that. And Matt, thanks for watching us on YouTube today. In a moment, we'll be talking with Marie in North Dakota, uh, a couple lines open for you as well. 833 288 EWTN. 833 288 3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. So, what's keeping you from becoming a Catholic? Well, let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Phone lines are open for you right now. It is not too late. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, please uh, send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com. All right, let's go to uh, Marie in North Dakota, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Marie. What's on your mind today? Okay, um... Thanks for taking my call. I remember uh, when Pope Francis was first uh, the Pope, that I read something that he said it was okay for divorced and remarried people uh, to go to communion. Is that true?
1: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, like most popular summaries of Pope Francis's teaching, this one is um, inaccurate because of how it lacks nuance okay, stated, you know, as a bare fact, you know, if I'm divorced or remarried, can I go to communion? Uh, the safe answer to that question is no, I cannot. Uh, the Pope, however, does discuss at some length in his encyclical on marriage, uh, um, uh, Amoris Letitia, circumstances that would constitute mitigating factors, right? Uh, and particularly delves into the question of, you know, when one is— uh, in an objectively moral situation for which they are not personally culpable and 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 uh, advises a kind of pastoral discernment in specific instances. So if somebody is in a situation where um, they believe that that applies to them, that uh, uh, or maybe, better yet, if you're a pastor of a parish and you have a couple that you think that applies to, uh-huh. the appropriate thing to do is to approach your pastor, to approach your pastor about your domestic life mm-hmm. and say, what? what do I need to do in this situation and and that's where the pastor is to apply the kind of prudence that the Pope calls for and to discern the case forward so it's not it's not a it's not a blanket mm-hmm. permission mm-hmm. all divorced and
0: remarried people you know let's march up to the communion line as you say it's a bit of a nuance it's and, a nuance and, and thing, it yeah. takes a, an expert in these kind of matters to be able to discern uh, you need to go this way you need to go yep, that yep and it
1: really it really is about discernment with the
0: pastoral Authority in the church. Sure. Marie, there you go. Thanks so much for your call from North Dakota today. Todd sent us an email. He says, I've been reading how the Holy See, during and after the fall of the Roman Empire, was required to seek protection from different regimes from the Byzantines, Charles Martel, and various Italian aristocratic families. Was this necessary, and how can we be sure that the politicizing and favoritism from one kingdom to the next didn't impair the development of church teaching and canonical law? Why on earth would we feel necessary, feel it necessary to
1: make such an outrageous assertion, (laughs) right? Of course, of course the politicization of the papacy Influence the course of Christian dogma and practice. Of how could, course, it did. How, how could it not? How could it not? Of yeah. course, it did. And and so the attitude that a Catholic takes towards this is not. We don't say that every development in Catholic theology was felicitous, right? Like the best development that could you know, Leibniz's best-of-all-possible-world scenario. We we don't take that position. I'm not, as a Catholic apologist, I don't have to defend every move the Magisterium's ever made and argue that this is the only policy and the best policy they could possibly have ever done. Um, Even as uh, celebrated a thinker as John Henry Cardinal Newman, who's a saint now, um, took a position regarding the First Vatican Council called uh, inopportunism. That is to say, he didn't deny that the Council... Uh, taught without error, mm-hmm. but he thought it wrongly taught without error. In other words, what you said was true, but you should have kept your mouth shut. Uh,
0: that was
1: the position he took. Okay, right. I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying that there's a lot of nuance that's allowed to the Catholic conscience in assessing the uh, um, not the truth of Catholic doctrine, uh-huh. but the 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 manner and mode of its teaching and promulgation. Right. And the fact that it's been subject to political machinations, Mm. yeah, of course, that's just,
0: that's reality. Well, there you go. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for your question today, Todd, via email. Here's one from Jane watching us today on YouTube. Jane says, hello, Dr. Anders, uh, you just said Pope St. John Paul II went to confession every day. Who does the Pope confess to? So I'll tell you a story about
1: that, that I have on good authority from, from uh, the sisters who witnessed this, right? okay. you might know the story, Tom. I might. There's some sisters that are, you know, uh, friends of ours here in the uh, city of Birmingham, uh-huh. who were fortunate enough to have an audience with John Paul years ago. And as they're on their way into St. Peter's to um, to have their audience, there's a beggar um, who says, uh, "You know, sisters, pray for me. I used to be a priest." Wow. And he's been reduced in circumstances, mm-hmm. yeah. okay? And so they, you know, speak to him, and then they go on to see the Pope, and they have their audience, and as they're finishing their audience, they said to Pope John Paul II, um, uh, Holy Father, there's a there's a beggar outside who says he used to be a priest. And, and the story goes that John Paul said, um, have that man brought to me at once. And so they... Some some functionary out, and he finds the guy and he mm-hmm. brings him in, and they figure out who he was, and he really was ordained, and he really was a priest. But he, you know, he he'd been, I guess, he'd been reduced to the to the uh, lay state somehow, and he wasn't in active ministry. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, John Paul sent everybody else out of the room and went to confession to
0: him. Wow.
1: And uh, and I think the end of the story, and I may be getting apocryphal at this point, mm-hmm. but this is how I, I remember it: is that um, the, ultimately the guy ended up being rehabilitated. How about that? All right. And um, in that story. Again, um, I wasn't a first-hand witness to it, and it's not in some official biography. I've gotten this, you know, word-of-mouth kind of rumor-mongering. So it could just be a legend, but I, I don't think it is. But it, it's true to the spirit of Pope John Paul II and the true doctrine of the priesthood, uh, which is that um, the pope himself could, could be confessed by the, the lowliest uh, parochial vicar, and, and it would be valid and appropriate all right appropriate
0: there you go uh thanks so much for your question today via youtube amanda's uh listening to us today in tennessee on youtube hey there amanda what's on your mind today
1: hello yes i was wondering if does the priest have to wear his stole in order for it to be a valid confession thanks appreciate the question the answer is no um he's supposed to wear his stole and uh, uh, that's what that's what the liturgical law tells him to do, uh, but for, but that's not necessary for validity. And so, you know, in a case of urgency, if uh, you're out playing tennis with your priest one day and you have a heart attack and you're about ready to expire on the tennis court, he's not going to say, let me run back to my
0: locker and grab my stole,
1: all right? He's mm. going to give you absolution right there on the tennis court.
0: There you go. Appreciate your call today, Amanda, from Tennessee. Our uh, screener, Matt Gabinski, uh adds a P.S. to the— uh, the beggar, formerly oh, a priest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he says uh, that priest, who, who became okay. r- you know reinstalled, was given a ministry to the homeless in Rome. Okay, so 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 he knows the story. He knows more about it than I do. That's fantastic. 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 Call to communion here on EWTN. Last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Here is a, a question now from Tyson watching us on YouTube. Tyson says, I understand that both Scripture and the teaching magisterium are infallible, but if the rule of faith comes from the Church, what role does Scripture play in the Church and our daily lives? Okay,
1: thanks. So, a couple mis- uh misconstruals here. Okay. One, Scripture is infallible, but it's also inspired. And we don't say that of tradition. We don't mm. say that tradition is inspired. To be infallible means you didn't make a mistake. Right. You know, I mean, like, uh, I've got a a 15-year-old who's pretty good at math, and if he turns in a geometry quiz, you know, and gets a hundred on it, it's infallible, right? He didn't make any mistakes in geometry. It's hardly an inspired document, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and uh, and so so uh, tradition is in, is infallible, uh, but in, under certain cases, but it's not inspired. So Scripture is inspired, meaning God breathed, meaning that it's exactly what God wanted to say in the manner that He wanted to say it, by whom He wanted to say it, to whom He wanted to say it. Very good. Right. So uh, Scripture—the second misunderstanding in the question is you talk about Revelation as if the only point of it would be to define a rule of faith. And I, I think a simple perusal of the Bible is enough to suggest that the purpose of Scripture is not just to give us facts to be believed or doctrines to be assented to, I mean, the biggest book in the Bible is a book of poetry. What's poetry for? What's the utility of poetry? Well, poetry engages our emotions and our imagination, right? It evokes something in us. Um, A great deal of the Old Testament is either poetry or narrative. Again, the narratives of the Old Testament don't give us doctrinal propositions to be assented to— They give us stories that move us, that help us to contextualize the dynamic of redemption and the questions of the moral life. Mm -hmm. So Scripture has a a very critical role in the life of the believer in that uh, the whole thing is an inspired text that's meant to, as St. Paul puts it, prepare the man of God for every good work. And so, uh, you know, there's a spirituality of the Bible, in the Catholic Church, that's normative. That's really principle. Uh, the meditation upon, the listening to, the 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 masticating of Holy Scripture, getting it down into the marrow of your heart and mind, uh, so that it begins to transform your consciousness. Particularly the Gospels, that are our inspired account of the life and teachings of Jesus. This is just absolutely primary in in the life of a Christian. I mean, that's the. That's the principal way, the primary way in which we are confronted with the person of Jesus is, is in the teaching of the Gospels. Um, so all that is just absolutely non-negotiable. It's why we, have, we reverence the Bible so much in the Mass.
0: And there it is. Tyson, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, please join us for Take Two with Jerry and Debbie, one of our long-running programs on EWTN radio. You can check it out weekdays at noon Eastern. Jerry Usher, Debbie Giorgiani, and their callers, they're, they're taking a second look at personal, spiritual, and cultural issues. Every program is a little bit different from the one before it or the one after it. A great uh, variety of uh, things, you know, topics and issues that they tackle each and every day. Do check it out. Take Two with Jerry and Debbie, Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, exclusively on EWTN Radio. Here's an email now from Veronica who says, My Protestant friend wondered why the Pope... And priests cannot get married since Peter was married was Peter indeed married if so if his marriage had any impact on Catholic popes priests and deacons to not marry when in church history was it declared that they were not to be married
1: yeah thanks I appreciate the question so Jesus himself was celibate he didn't have a wife Uh, st. Paul was celibate he didn't have a wife and Paul goes out of his way to remark that that form of life is more appropriate for people who are at the service of the ministry, that they can be concerned about what pleases the Lord and sure. the good of the church, rather than having to worry about, you know, the concerns of their spouse. Mm-hmm. So, in imitation of Christ, and also as, an, as a sign, an eschatological sign of the, the life that we all hope to live in eternity, where we will not be married or given in marriage— that the celibate state is the most appropriate one for Christian clergy. Now, that being said, we do allow married clergy in the Catholic Church under certain circumstances. So if you're a member of the Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church, um, uh, you are you are a, a married man is allowed to be ordained, you know, with some regularity. If you are in the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church, a married man can be ordained. Um, under some very strict circumstances, and we have married clergy in my own diocese, although they're not the majority. Uh, but in terms of the Pope and the bishops, um, from antiquity, there was an expectation that bishops, uh, if married, on their on their um, uh, arriving at the at the episcopal state, would cease from conjugal relations, and so very very early. There was a very strong preference for celibate bishops, and I'm, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not aware of, of, uh, uh, I'm not sure about this, but I'm not aware of any pope that had a wife other than Saint Peter, right? And if there were one or two, you know, in the second century, that I, I can't say that there were. I'm just, I, I, I just can't rule that out as a possibility. They were vanishingly rare in the tradition, and uh, and the presumption is that they
0: that they live celibate lives. All right. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Call to communion here on EWTN. Got an email from Anne in Groton, Massachusetts. Dear Dr. Anders, recently I have read several articles criticizing Pope Francis's comment that he privately hopes that hell is empty. I understand that the church should not teach that no one goes to hell because it may encourage people to be complacent about sin. But I don't see anything wrong with privately hoping that God is more merciful than we may believe. If I were to get to heaven and discover that the vast majority of people are in heaven, I'd be overjoyed. What are your thoughts on this? So um, a lot of us EW10 folks are pretty
1: into the Fatima prayers, you know, that we append to the rosary. Yes. One of those is, uh, oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins and save us from the fires of hell. Lead... Oh, 50% of souls into heaven. <laughs> nope. 75% of souls into heaven? Eh. Nope. Lead all souls into heaven, especially those who are most in need of thy mercy. Yeah. And in the liturgy of the church, there is, on uh, a few occasions, a, uh, a petition for the salvation of all souls. And, of course, uh, uh, the epistles teach that God desires the salvation of all. So I cannot think that it's inappropriate to desire what God desires.
0: Sure. All right, and uh, we appreciate your email. Thank you, Anne, from Groton. And uh, here is one now from Kevin, a grateful listener in Ireland. Hi, Tom and Dr. David. At a recent teaching session in our church, a man asked if it was okay that he badgered his daughter into getting her baby baptized. He said he was very forceful about it. His daughter reluctantly agreed, but has absolutely no intention of bringing up the child in the Catholic faith. She did it just to shut up the grandfather, as it were. A priest present didn't seem to have a problem with this, as he said the important thing was just to baptize the baby. Hopefully, the priest added that the child might at some stage come to the faith. Was this grandfather's actions correct? Again, that's from Kevin in Ireland.
1: Okay, so this is a question about pastoral prudence, right? This is not a question about a dogma. This is a question about what is the prudent decision here, and so the answer I give you will be my my theologically informed private opinion. Okay, and you're allowed to disagree with me. Sure. I think the grandfather was dead wrong. I think he was dead wrong, and here's why: Um, baptism works by, among other things, initiating us into the Catholic form of life. It initiates us into the Catholic community, to that to that corporate body that we call the Church. It makes us members of Christ's mystical body, which is that Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as baptism is the door into Christian life, so the Eucharist is the expression of that mode of life that is self-sacrifice. So I die with Jesus in baptism and rise again so that I can give my body and living sacrifices, my spiritual act of worship, a worship that is clarified and expressed and made possible and present through the offering of the Eucharist. So that's why in the Eastern Church, baptism, chrismation, and First Communion all go together as one act, as one sacrament of initiation, um, uh, because it, that, that there's this understanding that this is the initiation into a particular form of life. Uh, the law of the Church is that if, if the parents don't intend... To bring the child up in that form of life, that the child is inappropriately baptized, not invalidly baptized, but inappropriately baptized, because baptism without the Christian form of life following is not going to get you to heaven. Yeah, it's not going to get you to heaven. Um, and so the the risk here is that you 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 further deaden the girl's conscience, and further alienate her from the church. She likely walked away from Catholicism because of browbeating grandparents and the like. Yeah. right hmm. so this isn't going to do anything to reconcile her and it will do nothing in my judgment to to promote the salvation of the child as such right now i mean yes in god's providence the child could could be brought to faith later and be able to reflect back on her baptism as a, or his baptism uh as a wonderful
0: stage in that spiritual development but mm-hmm. that's
1: yeah you know, that's that's with the benefit of hindsight and that's not where we are right
0: now Kevin, thanks for listening to us in Ireland. Appreciate your email. Here's one now from Sue in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Dr. Anderson. And Tom, I am the only practicing Catholic in my family. My husband, two adult biological children, my stepdaughter, her husband, All have a very progressive ideology. My granddaughter from my stepdaughter will be turning 18 and has met some Catholic young men who she's friends with. I think this has made her curious. In her homeschool studies, she studied Buddhism and would now like to study Catholicism. Her mother is willing to look at my book recommendations. She states, My granddaughter does not want any bias or religious interpretation and would like to read the Bible from cover to cover. I suggested the Bible in a Year podcast. But then she said her daughter really wants the words without any interpretation, maybe like a children's Bible. My feeling is that she wants to know how to refute the existence of God to these Catholic friends. We do not live in the same state, unfortunately, so my influence is minimal. Do you think this is an opportunity to offer book suggestions? What would help here? Thanks, Dr. Anders. That's from Sue in Portland, Oregon.
1: Yeah, so a couple things come to mind. One, when I, I went to a very good high school. I went to an independent private school mm-hmm. that was nonsectarian. And I had a just an absolutely fabulous history teacher when I was there. And uh, he was not a Catholic. He was Jewish and uh, one of the best teachers I've ever had. And when I was a freshman in high school, had my, my inaugural class in European history with him, the first assignment that he gave us was go to the library, the school library, and check out any history book that you like. Don't care what it is. Your assignment is to write an essay on the bias of the author. Ooh. And And, of course, you know, brains full of mush that we were, you know, the 14-year-olds in the room would go, <laughs> what if he doesn't have a bias? And uh our professor wisely said, No, 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 you don't know how this thing works. Everyone has a bias. Everybody. Everyone. Everyone has a point of view. They they stand sure. someplace, they have a perspective from which they write. Mm-hmm. So the the desire for a a a an unbiased account of anything is a fantasy. Yeah. There's no such thing. You can have a you could have a secular history of the Catholic Church written from a secularist point of view. But you can't have an unbiased one. Do
0: you right? think the word bias has a negative connotation?
1: Well, to this to this girl, it does clearly, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, look, I, I I would be perfectly content to recommend, uh, you know, any number of histories that are of the Catholic faith, histories of the Catholic faith that that you know aren't written from a Catholic sectarian point of view. I mean, you know, something like a you know an Oxford History of the Christian Church, for yeah. example. That so I mean this that. In any number of texts out there would fit that bill, and, and, um, and I, I wouldn't hesitate to read them. But, uh, but, but don't think that they're without bias, just because they're not written by Catholic theologians.
0: Sue, thanks so much for checking in from Portland, and we have this one now from um, well, there's no there's no name here, so we'll we'll call it anonymous. Dr. Anders, on your program, you often speak of your beliefs during your years of being a Presbyterian, which included anti-Catholic beliefs, such as Catholics aren't Christians, or Catholics aren't saved, or Catholics are going to hell. During the time you were a Presbyterian, did you believe that the followers of any other non Catholic group or church or denomination, not including Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses who are in a class by themselves, were also not Christians, not saved or going to hell. So if you want to
1: know, did I did I think that there were Christian groups that were neither Catholic nor Mormon nor Jehovah's Witnesses yeah. um, who were necessarily going to hell in virtue of their ecclesial uh identity. Yeah. The answer would have been yes, probably so, probably okay. so. Okay. So I was in a very conservative, uh, you know, borderlinely fundamentalist uh, branch of Pre- of Presbyterianism uh, with pretty narrow construal of um, of what saving faith consisted in. And so I would have regarded, say, mainstream denominational Presbyterians as uh, as not safe, not safe. Right, So, you know, there are some, some mainline Presbyterian denominations that um, that uh, basically succumb to a modernist interpretation of the Bible and, you know, whose ethical doctrines had departed from what I considered to be a biblical Christianity. I would have thought they were pretty unsafe, and, and there's a lot of groups that fall into that kind of category. Um, and there were some others that, uh, you know, were clearly um, borderline, okay. in my judgment. But yeah. again, like, sure. uh, from a Catholic point of view, looking, tu- you know, turning around— um, I, I have a very different—I construe the Christian landscape very differently today. And, uh, and I think that the attitudes that I had as a fundamentalist were really, really execrable, really, really despicable. And, and I would have put—if I were going to handicap the the scorecard the, uh, score now, I would have put 25-year-old David Anders in a pretty dim light, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, and so, many of those people that I look down on uh, Twenty, you know, 30 years ago I would
0: now regard as you know, as Jesus said, much closer to the kingdom of God Yeah, and you will lay a lot of this out in your excellent book, The Catholic Church Save My Marriage. Well, thanks for mentioning that Yeah, I do,
1: Tom, sure indeed So I you know, wrote that book uh, a while back uh, I guess it's coming on six years now that we published that one um, and it really is a narrative uh, not only of um, the church's teaching on marriage, but uh, my journey to the Catholic faith as a theologian and how everything I learned about Catholic truth and the sacraments and the moral life impacted me in that very intimate sphere, namely my marital life.
0: All right. And you may want to check that book out, The uh, How the Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. It's available uh, from EWTN's religious catalog. It's also available, if you go on to uh, Audible, it's available as a, uh, an audio book, which is great if you've got a long trip ahead and uh, something to think about and look forward to. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern. Check out the podcast anytime you wish. Charles will have today's program posted for you uh, in about a couple hours at EWTNradio.com. Actually, EWTN.com forward slash radio. That gets it right. On behalf of our great team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. See you next time here on Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.